And now for something completely different. Forget everything you've been told by others before. Get ready for the real deal. The full story. Real talk about money, markets, life. Now, it's The Real Investment Show with Lance Roberts. Presented by RIA Advisors. And good morning and welcome to the second best day of the week. That's right, it's Thursday here on The Real Investment Show. And really don't know what we're going to talk about today. I mean, not much going on you know at all Brand anything exciting happening on your end over there i mean you know no 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 real news to talk about just uh, another day in paradise <laughs> exactly i just of course uh yesterday uh the federal reserve hiked interest rates by three quarters of a point 0.75 so it was interesting because up until really the beginning of this week expectations were point rate hike by the fed and of course that's what had been talked about and then very interestingly, on Tuesday, articles start hitting the, the headlines and banks start raising their expectations for a 75 basis point hike, kind of giving the green light to the Federal Reserve. And that's what they did yesterday, hiking rates by three quarters of a point. Now, that's the biggest rate increase since 1994. Michael Leibowitz joining me this morning, of course, we'll get into that in a lot more detail. But there's so many, so many more things that are going on right now as well. Um, one thing we'll get into today and talk a little bit more about is oil has now responded back to the White House. Um, of course, on uh, Monday, Biden had sent a letter to oil companies saying, basically, you better produce more or else. And the American Petroleum Institute has now responded to the White House saying, if you want us to produce more, here's what you got to do. But here's the interesting thing. We're now producing 12 million barrels. Now, we are only 1 million barrels shy in production of where we were in March of 2020, pre-pandemic, before oil prices went negative. So, again, we're not that far off on production, and demand, of course, is going to slow. It's already slowing now, and that's going to get worse. One of the reports we had out yesterday that was very interesting, by the way, was retail sales. Retail sales were down... 0.3% yesterday. It was the expectation it was supposed to be a positive increase in retail sales, but that was a decline from a positive 0.7% in retail sales from last month. So in other words, retail sales fell by 1% on a month-over-month -month basis. That's a pretty steep drop. Now, here's what's even more interesting about that number. When you just talk about it, it's like, oh, well, retail sales down 0.3, no big deal. Remember, that retail sales are measured in dollars, not in volume. Now, this is a very important point here, because as we've used the example before, something you can really kind of think about, you fill up on a pretty regular basis uh, when you fill up your car, and that car only takes so much gasoline. You can only put so much gasoline in your car. So if you fill up once a week, pretty much you buy about the same amount of gas every week, depending on kind of your normal driving habits. So if it's costing you more, you're spending more in dollars, but you're not buying any more product. Now, here's the important thing about what I'm saying is that gas prices, energy prices, food prices have all been going up, which means the dollar spent, you're buying less, but you're getting more for it. I mean, you're spending more for it, but you're getting less in terms of quantity. Right. But again, we measure retail sales in dollar volume, how many dollars were actually spent. So if retail sales by fell by one percent last month, it was actually a much bigger decline in volume purchased because prices are higher. 
So again, we're starting to see that real impact into the economy where consumers are having to make those contractionary decisions that's going to lead to a profits recession and an earnings recession sooner rather than later. And here, the, 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 the really kind of interesting point is that analyst estimates for 2023 for earnings are still very high. They have not come down much yet. In an average recession, we see somewhere between a 12 and a 15% decline in earnings and earnings estimates. And we're not even close to that right now. So again, we've got a long way to go to start bringing down those, those earnings estimates. That's gonna impact market prices as well once we get there. In fact, we have an article out on Market Watch today talking about the coming earnings recession and why what the Fed is doing is going to exacerbate that earnings recession that companies are gonna have. So valuations maybe have, have come down here this year because earnings estimates are still high and prices have fallen. That is bringing valuations down. It's the P divided by the E. Price divided by earnings is how you get your valuation. So if earnings are high, if, you're, if your denominator is high and your numerator is falling, prices are coming down. The problem is now is that prices are still falling and now that denominator of E is also going to start to fall. And that's going to drag down valuations further as we get further out into this year and start to see those contraction in both forward earnings as well as reported earnings as we head into a recessionary contraction sometime later this year, uh, if not potentially sooner, depending on if the Fed continues to decide to hike rates at such an aggressive level. And again, because it's not just, remember, it's not just the Fed hiking rates. Yes, the Fed's hiking rates, which is slowing consumption because it's making things more expensive. That's the goal, right? I wanna bring down inflation by slowing demand within the economy that's going to lead to a recessionary contraction. Right now, the Fed seems to be okay with this, and we'll talk about some of their comments this morning with Michael Leibowitz about their thoughts about the economy. But one of the things that we'll have to deal with in terms of markets themselves is that markets are a reflection and really are a predictor of where the economy is going. We're down 21%, 22% this year so far. That's going to be a little bit worse this morning. Futures are pointing down sharply lower. Dow's down 549 points right now. NASDAQ down 307 points. S&P's down about 1.5% this morning. That's going to be kind of that, that reversal. You know, yesterday we had this rally after the Fed announcement, and then overnight traders went, you know, kind of woke up and said, wait a second. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you wait, you're hiking 75 basis points and you're going to do it again next month. And you just started the balance sheet tapering this month, right? Quantitative tightening is now in place. So we're now reducing monetary liquidity very quickly. Wall Street kind of coming to grips this morning that, you know, this doesn't particularly play out well for either markets, earnings, profits, and potentially the economy as a whole. So, so, so again, this is a really thing to kind of be aware of. Now, just on a real short-term basis, markets are very oversold here. We've talked about this over the last couple of days. Wouldn't be surprised that sometime today we see a little bit of buying trying to come in. Maybe we will, maybe we won't today. But again, markets are very oversold here. So a bit of a reflexive rally would not, uh, would, would not be out of the question at this point and simply just traders trying to position themselves. But importantly, we're in this very defined downtrend that we've been in now really ever since the beginning of the year. So, and every time we've gotten down to the bottom of this downtrend, we continue to have these reflexive bounces that really kind of get us back to 
very short-term levels of resistance or the top of that downtrend. And right now, that doesn't give us a whole lot of upside here at this point in the markets. There's a little bit of room here to potentially rally back towards the 20-day the moving average, but that's coming down rapidly. The 50-day moving average is coming down as well. Lots of overhead resistance. So again, the, the real kind of method to manage this market right now is continue to use these rallies, reduce risk, hedge portfolios, do what you need to do to help navigate this market. We've got some more work to do before obviously we get a real bottom put into place. Now that bottom will come before we actually get through the recession, but we'll have to figure that out when we get there. We're not there just yet. We still, like I said, have more work to do. But look, lots of stuff to get into. We gotta talk about big oil this morning. We gotta talk about inflation. We gotta talk about the Fed. Lots of stuff coming up here on The Real Investment Show. Michael Leibowitz will be joining me next, right after the break. Don't go away. Get daily investment news you can use. Delivered at the speed of the internet at realinvestmentadvice.com. Hurricane season is here. And along the Texas Gulf Coast, we know how to prepare. What we don't always know is which way the storm will go and if a hurricane does come your way, whether your house will flood. Fortunately, you can get flood insurance. Unfortunately, flood insurance rates have skyrocketed. Don't be at risk. Let the specialists at RIA Insurance assess your needs and shop your coverage for the best rates possible. Another service from realinvestmentadvice.com. Click on the insurance tab, realinvestmentadvice.com. The Real Investment Show. I have a big quandary this morning. Oh, yeah, I'm watching all these headlines about the flooding at Yellowstone. Yes. I'm just trying to figure out what Kevin Costner and Rip are going to do about this. I mean, <laughs> I don't know. Probably, I mean, are, probably are, are film they, another are, season. Are, are they going to move their cattle at this point? Are they <laughs> just going to shoot somebody, take them to the train station? Yeah. I mean, just, you know, what are they doing about this flooding? I mean, it's just terrible. I'm yeah. just joking, of course. It is a terrible thing that's going on in Yellowstone right now. But every time I see the headlines, I, I immediately jump. My brain immediately jumps to Yellowstone, and I start searching. When's Yellowstone season six coming out? <laughs> Not soon enough. Uh, by the way, it's very disappointing to know that Yellowstone Ranch is actually in Utah. <laughs> That's as bad as filming a movie supposedly set in Houston, and you see mountains in the background. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and you've seen that more than once. It's yeah, like, yeah. This is Houston. There's like this big mountain in the background. No, it's not. Houston's as flat as you can get. I mean, it's just. <laughs> if you stare hard enough, you can see Italy from from the coast of Houston. It's so flat. Anyway, morning, Michael Leibowitz joining me this morning as well. Good morning. How are you? Good morning. Uh, lots Good of stuff morning. to get into this morning. Um, all right, let's just start with the obvious. Fed hikes uh, rates by 75 basis points yesterday. Uh, they made a couple of interesting comments, but before we kind of get in those interesting comments, I just thought I'd get your initial take on, you know, it was interesting on Monday, everybody's talking about 50 basis point hike, and on Tuesday it goes to 75. All the banks run up to 75 basis points, and then the Fed follows suit on Wednesday. Um, 
you know, very fast progression from being at 50 basis points to 75 basis points on the basis of just one inflation report. Yeah, it seems to me it's very political. When we were talking last week, we were talking 50. The world was thinking 50. 75 was, you know, very few people thought they'd go 75 or even more. We had that CPI report, which the headline, so when they say headline, that's the whole CPI report was not good. It was higher than expected. But the core, which is what the Fed claims they care more about, the core excludes food and energy, was actually in line with expectations down for still at a high level, but down for a second month in a row. So from the Fed's measure, inflation still appears to be peaking. But the headline number, the head, and they call it the headline number, not just because it's the, the first number the BLS puts out, but because that's what makes the headlines of every newspaper, every radio show, every TV newscast was was really high and higher than expected. And somewhere between that report coming out last week and a meeting that Powell did have with Biden and a Wall Street Journal article by Nick Timoros, who tends to leak what the Fed wants the market to know, which said that the Fed was going to thinking about going 75. All of a sudden, the market sold off late last week. Bonds sold off and the market essentially priced in the fact that the Fed was going to go 75. Lo and behold, yesterday, the Fed goes 75 basis points and lowers their estimates for economic growth going forward, raises their inflation forecast, tells us that they're going to bring Fed funds up another almost two full percent uh, from where it is today, meaning that they're going to stay aggressive for the rest of this year. Again, just a forecast, whether yeah. they do it or not. I, you know, it seems hard to believe that they're going to be able to do it without crushing the economy because the economy, unbeknownst to the Fed, apparently is really starting to struggle. I, actually, I, I said unbeknownst to the Fed. <laughs> Powell said the economy was was looking good, showing no signs of really slowing within about an hour before that. The Atlanta Fed tells us that their forecast for the second quarter is second quarter economic growth is zero point zero zero. Yeah. Um, yeah, so, I, I thought it was very interesting. Powell literally says the economy is strong. Um, employ the the uh, Americans are doing well. I mean, just, you know, completely oblivious to the fact that their own Atlanta Fed, one of their branches is coming out predicting zero percent growth in the in the second quarter following negative one point four percent in the first quarter. And I don't have to I don't have to be a, a rocket scientist to figure out that negative 1.4 and zero, and you average that and annualize it over the course of the year, that's recession. <laughs> so, you know, right. I don't know exactly where, and I'm sure if you ask most Americans right now, they're not feeling too happy about, you know, their state of well-being. No, and, and Lance, that's why I said this was political. It seemed political. He was trying to say all the right things, trying to soothe everyone. But at the same time, there's a lot of for lack of a better word, lying going on. Yeah. The, the economy is not doing well. The economic data is okay, but we've said time and time again that economic data lags. And the best place to think, the easiest place to think about this is housing. Mortgage rates are now over 6%. The housing market is shutting down. House prices are coming down. Redfin is reporting that. That that is a fact. So mm. we're not going to see that decline in housing prices or housing activity show up in real data for two to three or four months from now. Right. So 
you can't wait for the economic data to dictate what you're doing. You have to try to get as much real-time data as you can, things like credit card spending, things like, we talk about these regional Fed surveys all the time, mm -hmm. the University of Michigan survey. And the reason we like those surveys is because they're about as close to real-time as you can get. And both of those, University of Michigan and the regional Fed surveys, again, the Empire State, which is New York State, was negative for the second month in a row. The the consumer expectations within University of Michigan was the worst number ever. That doesn't seem like a healthy economy, Lance, does it? Maybe maybe it's just me. No, no. Well, no, this is the that's the thing. Is like he literally said, this is his quote from yesterday, there is no sign of a broader slowdown in the economy that I can see. And that's clear. I mean, you know, I'm sorry. That's just that's just clearly a blatant lie at that point, because and again, it's not surprising. Look, the Biden administration right now is doing everything they can to try to pin the problems of inflation and and the economic issues that are going on right now for the average American on everybody but the administration. It wasn't my fault that we have high oil prices, despite the fact that when you were elected into office, the first thing you did was shut down the XL pipeline, blocked off millions of acres from uh, being drilled and sent an all-out attack with Wall Street support through ESG investing to get Wall Street to de-invest in oil companies, and that gave them a lack of capital to go drill with. So, And again, you, you set up this environment where if an oil company, and we'll talk more about this in the show this morning, but if, you, if an oil company wants to build a refinery, they've got to have 10 to 15 years of visibility going forward to justify that cost of building a new refinery because it takes time to build it, A, and then B, you've got to recoup that cost. And clearly, this whole climate change shift we're doing right now is not amenable to creating more oil and energy for the economy. So they're not incented to do it. And so the inflation came directly between that and then another $1.9 trillion worth of liquidity jammed into the economy when the economy was shut down. You know, I understand that, you know, this isn't playing out well for this administration, but, you know, just absolutely kind of blatantly lying to, 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 to Americans, you know, as the head of the Federal Reserve, really, I don't think is the best way to go to posture yourself for an upcoming election. Right. What's interesting is Jen Granholm, uh, secretary of the Energy Department, yesterday begged the energy producers to pump more oil to mm -hmm. do more you know to dig more wells do all that type stuff then in the same within the same minute she said but you need to shut them down within five to ten years yeah to your point you need 10 15 years of visibility as to what the output will be some visibility into supply and demand and they're telling you they're telling they're giving the energy companies the perfect reason not to not to dig, not to drill. Mm -hmm. It's it it's literally insane. And by the way, Lance, even if they bring the price of oil all the way back down to 50 bucks a barrel and gasoline's back below three dollars a gallon, it's such a small percentage of the way CPI is calculated. Right. There's so many other problems embedded within inflation. This is widespread. This isn't a gas problem, an energy problem. This is an inflation problem across the board. Well, that, uh, that's absolutely right. And, and we talked about that, you know, and, and you just mentioned this, you know, a lot of stuff that's going in the housing market, when you take a look at inflation, and this is where the, and, and uh, you know, this is where the Fed's going to find themselves in a real problem. You know, they're looking at, 
their inflation data and, and making these decisions based on the inflation data that's a lagging indicator. And to your point, you know, and as we and we talked about this, I think, on the show last week as well. When you take a look at how CPI is calculated, 42% of the calculation is all housing. That's about a three-month lag, as you just said a minute ago. So in the next couple of months, all this impact we're seeing to the housing market, 6.5% mortgage rates, um, you know, home prices already on the decline, home builder sentiment is dropping like a rock here. That's all going to start to show up in housing prices, and that's also going to follow through to what's called homeowner's equivalent rent, which is how we calculate the CPI. That's all going to start coming down fairly sharply. And again, oil prices can remain high, but if you have 42% of the index starting to decline, inflation's coming down. Right. Well, let's just think about that, Lance. I list a house for 500000 mm-hmm. Two weeks later, I drop it to four seventy-five. I drop it a month later to four fifty. Right. So even though I listed it today, it's still on the market at, say, 50000 below the original cost. I right. sell it on August 1st. It's not going to settle till September 15th. That's when that data first hits the system. Then it takes a while to compile. We may not see that house sale, which I put on the market today, started lowering the price Mm -hmm. until Thanksgiving or Christmas. Yeah, no, that's absolutely right. And, And again, we're starting to see a lot more houses sit on the markets for a lot longer. Prices are coming down. And again, to your point, this is all going to start to reflect it through. And then ultimately, just the supply-demand imbalance in the economy itself. Just people unwilling to pay more. I, I can't afford that house. The demand for housing will drop, and that will bring prices down even further. So it's a vicious cycle the Fed's getting themselves into. And it's interesting that you know they're completely you know, devoid of... of you know, and to your point, maybe it's all political, but they've got to understand the risk they've got of a recession coming up just around the corner. Be right back after the break. More with Michael Leibowitz. Don't go away. investment advice blog it's required reading for the informed investor catch it today at realinvestmentadvice.com in 1999 a parafiduciary group of financial advisors were busted by corporate giants for trying to operate in their clients best interest these men promptly escaped from a high cost margin environment to the houston energy corridor today still excoriated by their former employers they survive as protectors of others' fortunes. If you have a problem about preserving capital, if no one else can help, and you can find them right here, maybe you should hire the RIA team. You're listening to The Real Investment Show. Every day this week. Every day? Every day this week so far. CNBC. Markets in turmoil every day. <laughs> this well. morning, this morning, red headlines across the board. Markets in turmoil. Yes, we know. We get it. Markets are in turmoil. 
Um, Is it like starting every newscast with breaking news? Yeah. You know, there's actually been a movement. Uh, CNN recently is making some changes, obviously trying to, to save themselves uh, from this point. But they're actually going to stop using breaking news as much. They broke it. They, they, they broke the breaking news. <laughs> yeah. Not every story is breaking news. Not every story is news to start with. Then there's that. Yeah. <laughs> If most of your show is opinion, it's not news. Mm-hmm. That's that's the thing. Um, all right, so a couple of comments from uh, Powell yesterday. Uh, no, there's no sign of a broader slowdown in the economy. Uh, Mike, just uh, raise your hand if you think it's a lie or not. Um, <laughs> real GDP growth has actually picked up this quarter. I would like to know where he's seeing that, considering, as we just said a moment ago, that the Atlanta Fed is now predicting 0% growth for the second quarter. And every one of the kind of major indexes at this point are, um, you know, falling. And we're, we're seeing, you know, not only that, but also in things like um, the ISM indexes, the uh, Fed regional indexes, et cetera, that is all coming down very, very sharply here. Um, you know, there's a there's a risk that we've got problems um, in the economy that has clearly hasn't shown up just yet. Um, that also appears to be the other problem is that Powell says the U.S. economy appears to be in a strong position. Hard to really understand exactly how we are in a strong position at this juncture and what we can actually do about that. So, uh, again, I'm not sure exactly what Powell is thinking at this point or exactly, you know, how we're going to adjust for that. But, but again, this is, this is kind of the big problem um, that's currently facing us as, at, this, at this kind of current moment in time. But, again, as we start to look at this, it's not just the U.S. that is increasing interest rates. It is also the European Central Bank. The European Central Bank is actually having now a emergency meeting on what to do about inflation and slowing economic growth. What are they going to do? Are they going to start cutting rates? Are they going to start, you know, um, you know, what, what's going to be their next movement here? The Bank of England this morning hiking rates as well. So again, central banks around the world, it's not just the Fed, but central banks globally are hiking rates and not sure, you know, at this point, who's going to blink first. And that's kind of the big question as as to this issue and who's actually going to stop raising rates. And look, this is all a function of time here uh, before the Fed has to start reversing course. The problem now becomes really for the White House in terms of, you know, the upcoming election. You've got midterms coming up. This is this is June, right? So July, August, September, October, four months, you're going to be right in the midst of midterms. There's already a lot of primary runoffs that are going on. A lot of primary candidates are running. And then over the next, you know, really four months, starting now, we're going to see a lot of campaigning going on for uh, individuals to try to, um, uh, you know, get their seats right and, or maintain their seats, and this is going to be a big challenge for both the House and for the Senate. Um, of course, you know the Senate is tied virtually; fi- it is you know basically fifty-fifty. The tiebreaker is Kamala Harris in the Senate. So any changes, uh, any loss of seats by the Democrats 
in the midterms is going to be detrimental for any type of policy that Biden wants to promote over the next two years before the next presidential cycle. Um, there's only a slim majority in the White House, or sorry, in the, in the House, and that's going to be uh, a potential loss as well. We could we could we could potentially see a, a a fairly big sweep because of what's happening economically and inflation wise. Because again, when we go back in history and look at the presidents that have been in power during big inflationary spikes, you have to go back to Carter <laughs> um, for the last time that you had this kind of an inflationary spike. And that doesn't work out well uh, for the guy that's in office. Is it his fault? And we talked about this earlier in the week. Is it his fault necessarily that we have this big inflationary spike? No, it's not all his fault. We were doing, um, you know, lots of monetary interventions, you know, doing QE, $120 billion a month, cutting rates to zero, uh, you know, doing $1,400 checks to households. That was under the Trump administration, right? Um you know, before he was out of office. So we started this process, shut down the economy. That was under the Trump administration. So this, you know, what Joe Biden's dealing with right now isn't entirely his fault, but he's certainly not helping the situation for himself either. And Americans get it. And what, what Americans get and vote for is they vote for, they basically vote by their pocketbook. So whatever is happening economically, unfortunately, whoever's in office gets the blame for it. And that's going to be the big challenge here over the next four months because you're not going to get inflation under control in four months and hiking interest rates as aggressively as the Fed is doing it is going to accelerate the time frame to the next recession. And that's going to have a, 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 a large impact on what the makeup of the House and the Senate and policy is going to be going forward. Now, now this is going to be the interesting part about this. Let's assume that come November, we get a change in control in the House and the Senate. But we're in a deep recession. Do the Republicans who are now in control, do the GOP who is now in control of the White House and, and uh, sorry, in control of the, of the House and the Senate, do they start doing, going back to modern monetary theory, doing checks to households, doing all these things? Or... Or are they going to kind of focus on the important things, you know, cutting back on spending, cutting back on debt issuance, trying to get, you know, kind of the economy back into a more stable long-term position? I don't know. But it's going to be an interesting point to see what kind of policy that we get coming over the next several months and into next year as the economy moves faster and faster towards a recession. Because, again, the more aggressive the rate hikes are, the faster you're going to get to the next recession. This also has a big impact on oil prices. The Fed hiking rates is going to slow demand. That is going to bring down oil prices. There's a long historical correlation between higher interest rates and what goes on in the oil and, and with oil prices. And, and again, with this big spike in oil prices that we've had because of the actions taken by the administration up to this point, that's going to reverse itself, too. Production is coming up, right? Demand will fall. Supply will rise. And that's going to lead to a, a contraction in oil prices and a, and a reversion uh, of those oil prices back to more to lower levels. Now, when that occurs, that's also a disinflationary and, and deflationary and recessionary impact. 
So again, we've kind of got all these things in place now to create that type of recessionary backdrop. Now, does that absolutely mean we have to have a recession? No, I just don't see how you kind of avoid it right now with the environment that we currently have. You don't have stimulus support for the markets. You, the Fed is reversing quantitative easing into quantitative tightening. They are hiking interest rates. Um, interest rates themselves have gone up. Mortgage rates are at 6.5% right now. So pretty much everywhere you look, all the supports that were driving economic growth have been reversed. Now, again, doesn't necessarily mean we have to be in a recession. Doesn't necessarily mean we have to, ha have to contract. But we're definitely in an environment where we're going to have much slower rates of economic growth. And with the economy already slowing, it seems, you know, a little bit obvious that with the Fed aggressively hiking rates, that's going to accelerate the risk of a recession. And more importantly, they're going to hike rates to the point that they break something that leads to a bigger economic problem down the road. So not just a mild recession, but potentially a, a much deeper recession because of aggressive Fed policy on top of an already slowing economy. The, economy's already have, the economy already has a lot of monetary tightening in it from higher interest rates to higher inflation and wages not keeping up with that inflation. That's already tightening monetary policy in the economy all by itself. And now the Fed's going to lay on top of that even more of it. So again, this is this is kind of the challenge to look for. Markets are, are trying to price this in. The question is, is you know, have they done enough yet, or is there more to go? History says that there's more to go because we have not contracted earnings yet, right? These earnings estimates, as I said at the opening of the show, are still way too elevated here. Uh, still expecting well over $200 a share in earnings by the end of 2023. And that's just going to be a very difficult mark to meet at in this current environment. And particularly since, you know, remember that earnings are derived from consumption. It's what you and I spend at the gas station, at the clothing store, at the grocery store, wherever we're spending money, that's where Walmart and Target, they don't generate earnings out of out of thin air. It comes from consumption. And if that consumption is slowing, earnings have to fall and analysts are way behind the curve of, rev of revising down those forward estimates. All right, quick break, come back. We'll talk a little bit about uh, the American Petroleum Institute. They have now responded to the White House on what can be done to incent oil companies to drill. Be right back after the break. Get daily investment news you can use. Delivered at the speed of the internet at realinvestmentadvice.com. Hurricane season is here. And along the Texas Gulf Coast, we know how to prepare. What we don't always know is which way the storm will go and if a hurricane does come your way, whether your house will flood. Fortunately, you can get flood insurance. Unfortunately, flood insurance rates have skyrocketed. 
Don't be at risk. Let the specialists at RIA Insurance assess your needs and shop your coverage for the best rates possible. Another service from realinvestmentadvice.com. Click on the insurance tab, realinvestmentadvice.com. The Real Investment Show. Are out this morning, Kravis, Colbert, and Roberts. Uh, they're a uh, nothing to do with me, by the way. <laughs> I wish uh, out with their mid-year outlook and talking about you know higher oil prices for longer and you know the the you know inflation outlook, etc. You know it's interesting because you know we've got two things that are kind of going on. And, and look, the White House wants to blame at this point what's happening with Russia for the oil price inflation that we have. But really, this all has been occurring now for quite some time. And this started, for the most part, when Wall Street declared war on the energy companies. And they did that through this ESG investing. And Mike and I have both written articles about you know the fallacies of ESG. And, and, and first of all, it, it's as we've said before, it's great. If you want to be environmentally friendly, then go plant trees, right? Um, you know, that's how you actually impact the economy. Recycle your trash, do those type of things. That's how you can impact the economy. Just buying shares uh, from uh, shares of stock from somebody else doesn't impact economic growth. If I buy shares of Apple today, Apple has no idea that I bought shares of Apple and they're not going to change any of their policies of employing, you know, young girls to, you know, put, you know, chips on on phones in China, you know, that's not going to change any of that, right? It's just we're just trading shares between ourselves and that's all that goes on. So ESG, you know, really has no real foundation in helping the the climate or anything else, but it's great for greenwashing for Wall Street. They charge more for the same amount for the, for the same exact funds. In fact, a lot of mutual funds that had funds out there that were not getting money flows. It was a large cap value fund, and it was not getting any fund flows because their performance was terrible for whatever reason. They just simply changed their name to ESG, and all of a sudden they started getting fund flows, right? So it all became a big marketing scam for Wall Street. But the problem, importantly, and we saw this back in the late 90s with SIN stocks, uh, back in the late 90s, it was not a good idea to invest in companies that were investing in things like, you know, casinos and alcohol and tobacco and pornography, this type of thing. So all these virtual kind of signaling that was going on back in the late 90s, we weren't going to invest in sin stocks. And so everybody kind of started avoiding those. And those turned out to be some of the best performing stocks on the planet. Ironically, ESG was supposed to be the companies we don't want to invest in, and those have been the best performing stocks over the last two years by a large margin. And that's always kind of the, the way it is. But importantly, we Wall Street and the White House created an environment that has made it non-favorable for oil companies to do their job of drilling for oil. And, and this has been a big drive. Um, BlackRock, in particular, has a lot of influence. They manage trillions of dollars of assets. They manage a lot of money for big pension funds. And they've been pushing their pension funds, CalPERS and others that they manage money for, to, divide, to, to divest themselves of oil stocks in their portfolios. Well, that removes capital from the market that's available, that capital formation that, that 
oil companies need to go out and invest millions and millions of dollars into developing an oil field or an offshore oil well or whatever it is. So if you want more production, they need capital. And if you're extracting that capital from them, then that gives them less capital to, to work with. So that's one impediment. And then you reduce, and when, of course, when Biden took office, he restricted millions of acres of land uh, from drilling. He made getting permits much more difficult to go drill with. And then, of course, he shut down the XL pipeline, which reduced oil supply into the U.S. So all of those things combined have made a very negative environment for oil companies to drill. So obviously, the, the problem is, is, and Mike has written some articles about this, and I've got an article coming out next week, the number of, of drilling rigs that we have are rising, but they're not rising nearly at the rate that we saw the last time that oil prices were over $100 a barrel. So companies are drilling. They're just not ramping it up because, as we said earlier in the show today, that visibility is not there. So it was interesting. The American Petroleum Institute sent a letter uh, to the Biden administration laying out 10 things that, that can be done to increase oil drilling. And this is what President Biden wants, right? The president and his spokesperson have been attacking oil companies for the last couple of days. Y'all need to produce more. We're going to implement the Defense Production Act, kind of pulling a trick from the Trump administration to get more production of oil. You're going to try to force these companies to drill. You can't force a private company to drill. <laughs> you just can't. But it sounds good. You know, it's, it's a good soundbite, but you can't force a company to do it. But here's their 10 things. Uh, lift develop and, and this tells you what's been done to the oil industry over the last couple of years from this administration. Lift development restrictions on federal lands and waters. Designate critical energy infrastructure projects. Fix the, the NEPA permitting process. Right? Can't get a permit. Accelerate LNG exports and approve pending LNG applications. Pending LNG applications. Companies, and my wife works for an LNG company, can't get, can't get approval. Right? They're, they're sitting there. Applications are there. Nobody's approving them. Unlock investment and access to capital. Again, Wall Street's been declaring war on energy companies. Not surprising. Dismantle supply chain bottlenecks. Advance lower carbon energy tax provisions. Protect competition and the use of refining technologies. Uh, and permitting obstruction on natural gas projects. Kind of an obvious one. And advance the energy workforce of the future. So these were just 10 that the American Petroleum Institute came out with and said, look, if you want us to drill, you've got to give us the environment to drill with. And as we said before, is that companies, if I'm going to invest capital and uh, if I'm going to invest $100 million to build a refinery, I got to have enough, I've got to have enough window into the future that I can say, okay, if I invest that capital today, am I going to get my money back? And right now they simply don't have that visibility. In fact, just recently, one of the big oil executives says there will never this is a pretty strong statement. He said there will never be another refinery built in the U.S. Never. And there's your big problem. Mike, what's your thoughts on this? I, I think here's the sad part. If your goal really was to get off carbon energy as much as you can mm -hmm. and move to alternative sources of energy, you need to encourage the, the uh, inventions for these new sources of energy. And what's the best way to do that is to have $10 gasoline, right? In, right? in theory, if they really cared more about the environment than they do winning an election, they would actually like higher gas prices because it makes owning electric cars 
more fee economically feasible. It makes exploring for you know hydrogen alternatives more feasible. Mm -hmm. It provides and it, it encourages someone to come out and find a cheaper source of oil. When gasoline is two to three dollars a barrel, it's hard to beat that. It's just the cheapest source of oil there is, and you need all kinds of subsidies to try to encourage this. Right. So, so on one hand, they're saying we're green, we're the green, you know, everyone's green, except they're not green when it comes to paying the price for being green. <laughs> and there's a price yeah. somewhere between now and who knows when, 2030, 2050, 2090, we may switch entirely to some new source of energy. But it's not going to be easy, and there's going to be a cost to that. And by trying to get oil back down to two bucks a barrel or two bucks a gallon, you're really encouraging people to not to not explore the alternatives. So figure out what you want to be. Do well, you want to win the next election, or do you want to be green? Yeah, but th there's another huge problem with the whole theory, right? Um, I want to be green. I want to have all these other alternative sources of production. Okay, fine. No problem with that. It takes a tremendous amount of oil to produce a windmill or right. solar panels or electric cars. You know, the, the carbon footprints on all these things are pretty, you know, enormous. So if I switched all these other things, and here's the point, and the argument is, oh, yeah, but once it's produced, then you don't need oil anymore. That's great. But you got to keep producing this stuff. And so... As you begin to move these other sources and you start to kill off the energy companies, then the, the input costs for building these things become astronomically more expensive. So, again, the, the, the cost efficiency of these things really don't show up. And, and these, are, these are some of the things that people forget about. It's like, yeah, but once it's produced, then I get, I get cheaper production in the future. No, because all the other input costs are going to go up because oil's in everything. Name one. You cannot name one thing that oil does not touch a head of lettuce. Well, no, you got to ship it from point A to point B, right? You know, there's oil in everything from the clothes you, you wear to the computers you use to the food you eat. There's oil and petroleum involved in everything. And so you, you can't get away from it. But the more that you restrict that production and the more you demonize it, the more you increase the cost everywhere else. So the idea of being all green is fantastic. You just can't, you really honestly can't afford it because it's non efficient in terms of the form of energy production. Right, right. It, it, it's the whole energy policy is kind of warped and it's warped around this green climate initiative and i get it right let's try to do what's best for the climate yeah. but maybe what's best for the climate is to keep producing oil come up with other ways of sequestering carbon plant yeah. more trees there's so many other things we can be doing but we have to admit at some point that our economy runs on good old-fashioned oil yeah. and it affects like you said everything lance and that's the approach we have to take is how do we how do we work around that instead mm -hmm. of trying to demonize that and come up with some alternative that's not really much better yeah exactly and uh, but again this is uh these are lessons we learn and we we kind of swing that pendulum in one direction or the other and then eventually we find some middle ground that makes a lot more sense and we'll get there to that point unfortunately Looks like we're going to have to go through some pain first to get there, as always is the case. All right, that wraps up the show for the day. Three Minutes on Markets is coming out. We'll give you a market update today, uh, where we are after yesterday, what uh, happens this morning with the open. Markets looking to open down fairly sharply, down down 566 right now. 
uh, on the Dow. So it's going to be a, a pretty tough, uh, tough opening. We'll see if the markets can try to get some recovery. Uh, later on today. Uh, in the meantime, get by the website. Latest article is out on the websites as well. That's Michael's article from yesterday on financial instability. And of course, our daily market commentary is up on the website as well. All right, that takes care of it. Be back tomorrow for Financial Fitness Friday. Have a great day. It's a rich